grateful to be here today. My uh, grandparents are here. And I'm, I'm glad they can make it. My grandpa gave me a mint before I started today. He said, when that mint melts, you better start wrapping it up. <laughs> I'm going to do my best, but... He's had some pretty long-winded sermons himself, so it's the least that he can do is to sit through one of his grandsons. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as we talked about several weeks ago, we're talking about a subject that is very near and dear to my heart, and uh, Andy, he asked me probably four months ago if I would be willing to... Uh, fill in for him October 17th without really thinking about it I said sure and you know life I've heard it said that life is lived forward and it's understood backward and you know in hindsight we didn't know that Andy would be sick and be out anyway he had a trip planned but obviously he's not on his trip um, and Philip has had to step in and preach and man pastor I, I don't know what I would do if I had to preach multiple Sundays in a row. The last time I was here was back in January of this year. And, uh, you know, we talked about some biblical New Year's resolutions that we could adopt uh, as believers. Um, and ever since then, I oftentimes have wondered if I would ever get to preach again and when that might be and what I might preach on. And I just thought and knew that if I had the opportunity again, that that I would preach on worship. I'm sorry, I'm kind of sleep deprived right now. That's what it is. But because uh, it's a, a topic that's uh, near to my heart as your worship pastor, and uh, I really don't know why I'm so emotional right now. To tell you the truth, uh, I guess uh, when you have kids, it just kind of starts coming out of you. But anyway, we're going to be talking about worship today, and. So, when Andy told me that I was going to get to fill in again, I knew I wanted to preach on worship. So, I told him, I said, Andy, I want to preach on, sorry, get this right. I want to preach on worship. And so, he gave me some resources uh, that I could start looking at. He gave me a CD-ROM series by R.C. Sproul. And uh, so, I went and put it in my old truck CD player. And I started listening to it. On my way to work, I would listen to R.C. preach on this topic of worship. And then one day out of nowhere, my truck CD player just died. And I thought to myself, huh, that's weird. Right in the middle of a sermon, just died. And nothing worked. I checked the fuses. I tried pulling the radio apart and putting it back together, and I couldn't figure it out. I mean... The main thing I was worried about is I couldn't get Andy's CD out of it, so, and then I started second-guessing myself, maybe this is God, maybe he doesn't want me to preach on worship, and I was trying to think about how I was going to tell Andy that I didn't want to preach on worship anymore, and I couldn't give him his R.C. Sproul CD back, and so I just prayed one day on the way to work, and I said, Lord, if it's not your will for me to preach on worship, then I won't preach on worship. I want to preach on whatever you lay on my heart, 
And if it ain't worship God, then that is fine by me. I trust in you. And no sooner did I say amen, that CD player came on. And it went right where it left off and started preaching. RC was preaching right where he left off. And I just thought that was funny. And whether or not you think it's coincidental or whether or not, whether or not God really does speak through weird things like that, um, that's not the reason that I'm speaking. It's not because some weird coincidence, but it, it's because it's a topic that's near and dear to me. But I want to keep it simple this morning. And I thought about how I could present this. Um, and I want to just have, I've got three questions. What is worship? Why is worship? Why do we worship? Why are we called to worship? And how we worship? And I just want to answer those three questions this morning from um, a biblical context. Um, and as R.C. stated in, in his sermon series, that uh, a good view of worship begins with a good view of God. So we ask the question to start, who is God? And we sang about it this morning. We sang about how our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is higher than any other. Our God is healer. He's a healer. He's powerful. And, you know, when you start to think about who God is, this attitude of worship just kind of flows from it. And that's kind of a very basic overview of who God is. Very brief. And, you know, we can go more in depth in that, but something that has probably spoken out to me the most recently is that God is a creator. I don't know if you've stopped to think about how our God that we serve is a creator. And for me, this is a hard one for me to swallow because I'm very, like, analytical, engineer-minded, and, you know, like, in other words, I've got to have all the ingredients before I can make the recipe. Like, it has to make sense from my perspective. And that's not how God works. God works completely differently. He doesn't need ingredients. He can speak, and from His Word, the all of creation was formed from His very words, from His breath, His life. And when you think about that, and you think about who God is, as I was saying before, this attitude of worship just kind of flows from it. Uh, so that, that's kind of what I want to start off with this morning, is that if you have questions about worship or understanding worship, what it really is, then I encourage you to open up the Bible and look at who God is. Study who He is. Study His attributes. Study what makes Him who He is. What He has revealed about Himself in Scripture, because only from that understanding can we flow into this attitude of worship. So, that leads us to our first question. What is worship? Can y'all hear me okay? Everybody can hear me? This mic feels like it's going crazy. So, what is worship? Well, let's just simply define it. Worship, it's been used in a variety of different ways in our culture. And we worship lots of different things. Um, but as it pertains to us... Our context, our biblical context, you could simply define it as uh, worthiness of God, the worthiness of God. 
And you can break that word apart. I heard a pastor one time, he broke worship apart. One word is worth, and the other word, ship. Worth, you're trying to ascribe worth to God and ship. The second part of that word is the vessel on which you ascribe it, right? There's many different ways that we can worship God. It's not just through song. Um, we can worship Him in so many different ways that we'll look at today. But also, what goes along with worship is praise. Praise is another word that we hear when we talk about this attitude or this idea, concept of worship. Praise is just simply defined as our best and our purest attempt at expressing worship to God. So, let's look, and if you will, please get your Bible and open to Genesis chapter 4. I better get mine. It's kind of important. Genesis chapter 4. Now this is not the first encounter of worship in the Bible. However, it is one that I want to talk about first. It's the story of Cain and Abel. It might seem like a weird place to start a sermon on worship, but I want you to bear with me this morning. Let's read this together, and then we will start out with a word of prayer. Uh, we'll start in verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And we can stop right there. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we just come before you, and we are just grateful and thankful for the opportunity that we have to uh, learn about this idea of worship and the importance that it has in all of our lives. And Lord, as we come before you and we open your word, we ask that you would do what only your Holy Spirit would do and, and, and what only your Holy Spirit can do. And that is to, uh, Lord, just present these words in a way that would build and edify your kingdom. Father, I pray. Lord, that we would be able to lay aside anything that might distract um, from this time. And we just give everything over to you. And we ask this in your name. Everybody said. So, Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. This is the first time that we are introduced this idea of a homicide in creation. And not only is it a homicide, but it's also what's called a a fratricide, which means a man killing his own brother. Over what? Over what did Cain kill Abel? 
Well, it was over a sacrifice of praise unto God. These were believed to be sacrifices of praise that Cain and Abel were to present to God. So remember, praise again is our best and purest attempt at expressing worship to God. So this form of worship that Cain and Abel were doing, it led Cain into jealousy and anger and eventually to him rising up against his brother and killing his brother. Now the temptation here, um, as R.C. Sproul had mentioned in his sermon, was to uh, point to the fact that Cain did not offer a blood sacrifice. And because Abel offered a blood sacrifice, his offering was acceptable. And because Cain did not, his offering wasn't. And that's not what Scripture says. In fact, Scripture does speak on it. And it doesn't say anything about the blood sacrifice. But rather, in Hebrews 11.4, if you want to turn there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Hebrews 11, 4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So where the Bible does speak on this subject matter, it doesn't say anything about a blood sacrifice, but rather that Abel simply presented his sacrifice in faith. And really the reason that I, I brought this up, number one is that worship is one of the most important components of our life as Christians and in the life of all believers. A lot of people argue that it is the very reason why the church is formed. And why Israel was chosen and adopted as God's holy nation. But this story introduces this concept of sin and the dangers of sin. And uh, more specifically, the dangers of sin in regards to worship. And ever since the fall of man, sin is in our heart. Sin was in Adam's heart. And this sin, it's important for us to realize, hinders our ability to worship as Adam and Eve did prior to the fall. So that's kind of a, uh, the first question of what is worship. And we lead ourselves into the second question, which is why we worship. Why are we called to worship? Why do we worship? And to understand this, we're going to turn the pages of Scripture back just a few more uh, to the first man, to Adam, to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is where God walked with Adam before the fall. And we're not going to uh, read any of this verbatim from, from Scripture, but I would ask you to just kind of put your thinking caps on and, and try to get a picture of this story um, as I kind of read through a summary of it. So the Garden of Eden was a perfect place. It's a unique sanctuary where God has chosen to dwell in a unique way. He creates his crowning jewel, man, and he creates man in his image and in his likeness. 
We could have been created in any image or in anyone's likeness, but God, Creator God, chose to create us in His own image. And this world, Eden, it's a perfect world. There is no stain of sin. There's no hint of death. Here, man walks and talks with God. They stand face to face and enjoy the deepest, man enjoys the deepest kind of love, the deepest kind of relationship that he could possibly experience. Think about that. Think about what Adam had prior to the fall. So he gives man a name, Adam. And he charges Adam. He says, Adam, this is my world. And I charge you to care for it. He gives man a helper, Eve, to labor alongside. And he commands them to be fruitful and to fill the earth and to subdue it. And to do all of this for the glory of God. And in all of creation, there's just one rule. Not to eat of one tree. So in the middle of the garden, there's two trees. And these aren't regular trees fruit-bearing trees or a tree that we might see today they're, they're symbolic they represent two different realities one tree the tree of life represents obedience it represents submission to God, it represents the law the other tree the tree of knowledge of good and evil represents disobedience and rebellion from God. And they have the choice each and every day. Should we submit or should we rebel? Will we sin or will we be obedient? Every day they can show what they choose by taking or not taking up the fruit of the trees. It should be simple, right? Seems like a simple thing to obey. Then enters Satan, a crafty serpent who convinces man that there is more to this God. There is more than just good. See, Adam knew of all the good that was in God. He walked with God. He stood face to face with God. But Satan convinced Adam and deceived him and led him to believe that there was also evil. And almost before Adam knew it, he was deceived. And he took and he ate of the tree. And as he does this, he declared independence from his creator. As soon as he ate of that fruit, he declares independence. In that moment, everything changed. They now see good and evil. But there was a trick. Evil is not just something that's out there. It's not just something that Adam saw, but rather he became evil. Evil now lived inside of him. Evil became a part of him. Sin became a part of who he was. Now he had this sinful desire, this evil welling up inside of him. Now, as soon as he ate of this tree, and as soon as this change took place, they were confronted by God, right? 
God explained that there had to be a consequence. So he said to the serpent that you will forever crawl on your belly and dust shall you eat. Um, and then one day the seed of the woman will crush his head to the woman. God said you will now experience the great pains of childbirth. To the man you will now live and eat by the sweat of your brow. You'll spend your whole lifetime doing backbreaking labor, and then one day you will die. You were taken from the dust, and you will return to dust. Man has become like God, knowing good and evil, but man has become unlike God in that he is evil. Now, sinful man was still in the garden, right? He was still in the garden at this time. He still had access to this other tree, the tree of life. I want you to just think for a minute. Pastor Andy talks about how sometimes it's beneficial to look at these different paradigms. Think about if sinful Adam were to eat of the tree of life. Think about this sinful person eating of the tree of life. Or of the tree of life. Not only would he still be evil, it wouldn't change the fact that he had this evil inside of him, but he would become immortal. Think about a sinful person who's immortal, never dying. That's a horrible thought. A man that could become more and more evil, more and more twisted, more and more demented. God knew this, so he acted in mercy. And he kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. He sent them away. And on the east end of the Garden of Eden, he puts a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And there they were. There they stood. God in Eden and man outside of Eden. And in between them, this barrier, now this cherubim with this flaming sword. I don't know if you've done any studying on angels. I did when I was studying for this. Cherubims are bad. They resemble a man in some way. They have a face of a man, but they also have uh, the face of an eagle or the face of... Lions. Some of them had the face of lions. So they were fierce predators. God didn't just do that because he wanted to. Well, he didn't just do that because that's what he wanted to do. But it was, this should give us an idea of how dangerous man had become, right? He could have made a, an angel bunny guard the Garden of Eden, but man was evil. So he put this fierce predator, and these cherubim are, that's exactly what they are. They're guardians of the things of God. So, uh, this kind of makes it easier to put into context how sinful man had become, or, or what had happened inside of man, like the change that had happened before to after the fall. So man was made to walk with God, but now he is barred. The way is barred, and we are separated from God. All that is left for man now 
now at this time is to live out our days until death swallows us up and our bodies return to dust and our souls sent away from the presence of God. That's what will happen to us because that's what we deserve. Unless, unless someone can give us what we didn't deserve. Where can we get what we do not deserve? Is there any way that we can be spared the wrath of God and the consequences? Is there any way that we can be shown grace? Are you asking what, Seth, does this have to do with worship? This has everything to do with worship. We're kind of getting into our second or we're going over our second question now of why we worship. And as I was studying, I was trying to think, why? Why do we worship? Why did God create us to worship? What can I tell them? Well, it's because He He um, He created us. He, he gave us music. He gave, yeah, He gave us music. And he gave us a building to worship. He, well, yeah, he commands us to worship. That, that's reason enough, right? Yes, he commands us to worship, but in a way, that's a misleading question. Why we worship is a misleading question. We are worshipers. That's how we were created to be worshipers. It's not a matter of why we worship. We're, we're worshipers. We're going to worship. It's what we do. It's why we were created. So it's not like we have a choice in the matter. God created us to be worshipers. So the question of why we worship, it's because that's how God created us. It's not because He wants you to sing His praises in church. He wants you to lift high. No, you are a worshiper. You have no choice. That's who you are. So, we are out of Eden. <clears throat> I skipped way ahead. I'm sorry. I thought I was going to have to be reading these notes. So, when man sinned in the garden, it disrupted the very worship that we're created for. We're worshipers. We're created to worship. But whenever Adam sinned, it disrupted that worship that God intended for us to be created for. We were kicked out of the Garden of Eden because of the sin that now lived in us. Now, whenever Adam sinned, whenever Eve sinned, we did not just stop worshiping God. We, we didn't just quit worshiping Him. We were now inclined to worship ourselves, to worship what we wanted to, to pursue what we wanted to pursue. We became idolaters. We participated in false worship instead of true worship. And this sin problem, because of Adam, led to this worship problem. So could we ever become true worshipers again? Because now we're false worshipers, right? We sinned. We've been banned from the Garden of Eden. Can we ever become true worshipers again? Let's fast forward now to God choosing Israel to be his people for no other reason 
than his own grace and mercy. He rescues them from slavery and he speaks with Moses. And he tells Moses, I desire to be with my people again. He gives commands on building a tabernacle, a place where people could travel a few times a year to worship and to be near God. In this tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, separated from everything else by a thick veil that had been stitched out of the most ornate and beautiful fabrics. You know, the, I listened to some pastors talk about the craftsmen and the artists that were involved in the tabernacle. They were anointed by God, and everything that they did was planned out and specifically given down to the most particular detail. God, God gave every single detail because He is holy, and now we are not. And so... He wanted to be with us again. So this tabernacle was built. And this veil was going to separate the rest of the tabernacle from the Holy of Holies. And inside of the Holy of Holies, well, on the veil that separated, there was a cherubim, coincidentally, that was stitched onto this veil. But not only that, on the other side of the veil, there were two golden cherubims. 15 feet tall with a 15 foot wingspan and they sat on top of the mercy seat and this is where God chose to be and the primary means by which people could come and worship God was through blood sacrifice through the blood of animals we could now worship God their blood was to be shed and sprinkled to God as a sacrifice and as a form of worship but there was a veil that separated us from God. Just like the cherubim and the flaming sword separated us from God in the Garden of Eden, we still have this barrier. We're still barred. There was only one exception, and that is that once a year, the high priest, on the Day of Atonement, he could take the blood of the bull and go through the veil into the Holy of Holies, and he would dip his fingers in this blood seven times, and he would offer it before God in hopes that he would win God's favor for another year. And it worked. And they did it year after year after year. This high priest would risk his life. Once a year, every year, he was permitted to enter and offer this sacrifice. And this worked. But the way remained barred. The offering of blood would always satisfy the Lord for another year. He would set aside their sin and make atonement for them every year. But there must be a better way. Even though his people must have been thankful for the temple, must have been thankful that he wanted to dwell with them again, there must be a better way. They must long for something greater than the temple. Surely they understood this. Surely they would see the veil and the cherubim. They would be reminded of their own sin. They would be reminded of the sin of Adam and the separation that was between then and now that, that was separated between themselves and God and wonder if it would ever 
be removed. If there was ever going to be a time where they could worship God face to face just like Adam did. And this led to uh, a temple being built during King Solomon time. So the tabernacle was first. And the tabernacle was for the travelers. But a temple, a temple was for God's holy people. And this temple was still up during Christ's day. While Jesus walked the earth. He went to this temple as a boy. And he cleansed the temple as a man. He carried a cross up a hill. Not far from the temple. We're moving into our third and last question of how we worship. John 4.20-24 through 24 is a great... I'm, I'm just going to read it because... It'll be a little bit quicker. John 4.24 is the encounter of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Starting in verse 20 of John chapter 4. Going to verse 24. The Samaritan woman is speaking. She said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that it is in Jerusalem, the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman... Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now it is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. We can, uh, well, verse 24, God is spirit, those who worship him, must worship him in spirit and in truth. So he tells the woman that everything is about to change. Something new is about to happen that goes beyond this temple, that goes beyond the sacrificial system. What did he mean? As we study his life and as we watch Jesus grow, we learn what he meant. We begin to see that he is different. He is special. He is set aside for a high purpose. He has a high calling. He is essentially called to be the second Adam. The first Adam led us into the sin. And the second Adam will lead us into reconciliation. And will make us right with God. We are not right with God. This is evident in our false worship. Even though God has given us the knowledge of who He is. And... His attributes of worship, even though we see His attributes, we still suppress what we know. And we worship someone, anyone else, anything else other than God. This is proof of our sin. And this sin, again, taints our worship. It prohibits us from worshiping God. It can't come from within us. True worship cannot come from within us. It must come from something outside of us. It must come from something outside of the sacrificial system. It must come from something outside of the temple. So, what did it come from? Well, it came from Christ. It came from this good, this perfect man. He was tempted, but he was without sin. 
He suffered because of the sin of the people, and he loves his people, even though they are sinners. He loves his people like Adam and Eve, people like you and me. And while hanging on that cross, God poured out his full wrath for all of humanity on Christ. All of his wrath was emptied onto Christ until finally Christ's work was done. Jesus breathes his last and he cries out, it is finished. He gives up his spirit and the moment that he dies, something happens. He cries out, it is finished, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And as his heart beats for the last time, the veil is torn. This giant curtain that bars man from God, that separates us from him, is destroyed. It is rendered useless. God tears the curtain in two. It's not torn from the bottom by man, but from the top by God. The cherubim are gone. The flaming sword is gone. We no longer have to fear the cherubim or the flaming sword. But there is still something between us and God. It's not a predatorial cherubim. But it's a man. It's Jesus. The God man. Death cannot hold him. He's alive. He's calling. This is not a cherubim warning us away from God. It's a friend calling us to God. He's calling. Come to me all who are labored and burdened. And I will give you rest. Come. Walk past the curtain. Walk past the, the cherubim and into life. We can now approach God with confidence. Hebrews 10.19 says, Brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. The high priest entered once a year with fear, and rightly so. But we are told to enter with boldness and confidence. Christ tells us to come and be saved. This invitation to salvation is an invitation also to worship. We can now worship by God's grace, truly and rightly. The hour has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Through Christ, He has found us. Christ gives us what we need to worship. God gives us Christ. He gives us what He requires so that now we can worship Him in spirit. What does it mean to worship Him in spirit? This is answering the question of how we worship. We worship Him in spirit. We no longer have to go to the temple to worship God. The veil is torn. And the temple is done. It has served its purpose. Instead, we are the place. The Spirit of God indwells us. What does it mean to worship God in truth? We worship God in truth by the truth that we find in His Word. We don't worship based off of our own feelings or our own emotions because these are untrustworthy. We worship God only how He prescribes in His Word. We learn the truth, we know the truth, and we worship according to the truth. We recite the truth in reading scripture together. We declare the truth in singing. We display truth through the sacraments. 
We don't make up new and creative ways to worship God. We don't become the top entertaining church on the block. We don't become a people-pleasing church. We seek to honor and to glorify God and to declare His truth in all that we do. We are people of truth who worship in spirit and in truth. What a gift. What mercy, what love. What grace. God could have left us as false worshipers. He could have left us in the sacrificial system. On the far side of the cherubim of the veil. Barred from his presence. But now he allows us to worship in spirit and in truth. We are called to do this as a congregation. Each and every week we're called to worship Him in spirit and in truth. With our entire lives, we're called to worship Him in spirit and in truth. In everything that we do, all the while, the worship that we do now points us to that great day when all of God's people will gather before Him in His presence and sing praises to Him to shout blessing and glory and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and power and might be unto our God forever. Amen. So in closing, I would like to just say a few things. As Christians, as God's people living on this side of the cross, we have a privilege we have a privilege of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. We have the honor of worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. God, in confidence, we have the honor and privilege of worshiping God in confidence and in boldness. We have the joy of worshiping God each and every Sunday. Worshiping God is not something that He owed us, it's not something that we deserved. But rather, it's a great privilege. It's a gift. It's a gift of grace. It came from outside of us. We have no bearing on it. We have been given this gift of access to God so that we can continue to worship, honor, and glorify Him. So I pray and I hope that through this, that we can all see that we are created beings by Creator God. That we're created in His likeness to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that we can learn all about this inside and out. That we can learn who God is. Because like we said at the beginning, understanding who He is is what leads us to this attitude of worship. It comes from an overflow of his attributes and who he is. We can understand this inside and out, frontward and backward. But the fact of the matter is that we're worshipers and that we're going to worship something. So I ask and I challenge you to examine what are you worshiping. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this gift of worship that you've given us. God, we're thankful for your son. God, we're thankful for 
his death on the cross, for the life that he lived, to enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth, God, apart, apart from that, we cannot worship you in spirit and in truth. Apart from that, Father, we are barred from your presence. There is a thick veil and cherubim between us and you. Father, I pray that we would be like Abel when we present our sacrifices of praise unto you, God, that we would do so with faith, we would do so with boldness, with confidence as your word commands. Father, I pray that we would not be consumed with our own thoughts and emotions when we worship God. I pray that when we come into your house to worship you, God, that we wouldn't be concerned about how we feel or how we can make ourselves or other people more comfortable, God, but rather how can we honor and glorify you more as a church body? How can we bring more honor and glory and praise to your holy name, Father? We're thankful for this time that we have together. We ask that you would be with us as we go. Help us to apply what we learn, to think about what we learn, to continue to worship you as we leave this place.